Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 4 to 27. Daniel 4, 4 to 27. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I laid in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruits abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lifted its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down this tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, El, O Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under the beasts of the field, found in found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens live, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches, and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. 
And behold, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Believe the stumps, the stump of its roots in the earth and bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the, the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquity by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. May God... Um, be honored by the reading of his word. Please be seated. I'm hoping you resonate with this, but uh, at least for me, this might be a bit uh, of the machoism uh, of youth, but I love in movies, uh, or especially in books, when you have someone who is usually either, let's say, perhaps they're oppressed or uh, they're really skilled at something, and you have someone who's proud and doesn't really know it, like they're just really proud, they don't understand the skill and capability of this individual, and they kind of make fun of or they think they're all that, and then there's suddenly like a reversal at a certain point where it becomes, oh no, what, this guy? is the skilled one or has expertise or whatever it might be. Basically, the script is flipped. They are ashamed because the guy who is just proud and taunting now suddenly realizes uh, they're not the expert. They're not the one um, in a position of authority here. I think in Scripture, maybe we see this example best with Joseph, right? We have these brothers they're strong and mighty. They throw him in the pit. They sell him. And here's Joseph, you know, that feeling that you can almost feel of like, look at my power and you brothers, what you did to me, my vengeance is now. Of course, that's not how it works out. He is merciful, praise the Lord. But there's still this feeling that I can't help but uh, it excites me of this idea of what the underdog becoming the champion and this not just winning, but it's like winning over that individual. And it's not great. It's not great. I start to think further and further about this, and I think about, ooh, how does this apply to the gospel, right? There are times where people say, God's not real. You're an idiot for thinking that. Haven't you seen the science? Oh, you believe in God, not science. What, name the, the, the thing that has been said as an attack on God, on us, on people who believe it. All of them are out there taunting. Uh, publicly, all you have to do is spend a couple minutes on social media, and you'll see the taunts, um, and they know better. They're the proud. They know better. 
there still can be this temptation to go, oh, one day you'll see. Don't you worry. Jesus is coming back. You're going to get it. You'll know then. That's not right. There's still something wrong about that. There's something wrong about that mindset. So if you dig deeper at that, I think the question comes down to who needs the gospel? Who needs it? Who needs it more, let's say? Who needs it? Is it the pastor or the congregant? Who needs the gospel more? Is it the warden of the prison or is it the prisoner who needs the gospel? Is it the husband or the wife, the parent or the child? Is it the pervert or is it, again, a pastor? Is it the teacher? Is it the student? I think at this point, it'd be, it's rather rhetorical. The gospel is equally needed all the time for all of us, regardless of standing. And so what we're going to see as we get into this is we need to start thinking of this not as just, yeah, God humbles the proud, but instead, I would like for us to be angled, re-angled to God gives opportunity for the proud to be humbled so that they will not have to experience the ultimate humbling. Let's look, let's look at this vision. Let's see this and look at the angle and the approach of Daniel to the vision, not only Nebuchadnezzar and what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. The best way, the best kind of sermon you can have is a sermon in which you have some text, you have a prophet inspired by God interpret the text, and then give a short sermon after the text. And we have that today. So let's go to the sermon part. Let's go to the teaching and look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. And and let's read that, and then we will get into more of the text here. So what is this all about? What is the vision and the interpretation all about? Well, let's read verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. So I'll pause there. The therefore here is he has transferred from talking about the interpretation and giving the interpretation. He's now transferred over to giving counsel. Hear my counsel. So Daniel, we heard earlier in the scene, he hears the vision from Nebuchadnezzar. He's greatly dismayed. He's troubled. It's obvious on his face. Nebuchadnezzar can see it. Then he turns around, gives an interpretation. And then having heard all of this, he goes, having given you the interpretation, therefore, hear my counsel. This is my advice to you, having heard what I just heard the watcher, the holy ones, have decreed to you. And what is, the, what is the consequence of this? What is the thing that Nebuchadnezzar should take away? Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I would give a really good sermon if I just stopped here and just left you all lingering with that. That, would be, that, that is what there is for us to learn out of this. So you have been given the answer, what's in the text, this is what we're supposed to find. But we aren't going to end there, we're going to instead look at this text, and we're going to look at why is that the conclusion. Because I I don't know about you, but when reading this passage, I go, wait a minute, earlier I was talking about a tree and it's feeding all the ends of the earth and these birds are under it, and he's saying, break from your sins, have mercy to the oppressed. How does this transition happen? Where's oppression coming from? This, there's a tree blessing the birds and to the ends of the earth. How do you come to this teaching, Daniel? 
And we're going to look into this. That's what we're going to spend our time looking. How do you get to the conclusion that we've already been given, which is to break off from our sins, practice righteousness, show mercy to the oppressed. Let's look first at Daniel doing this. He's behaving this way. He is being the model and the example for what this is. So let's look first at Daniel's humility and um, his mercy to Nebuchadnezzar. So if you look with me at Daniel 4.22, so we're going to jump around back and forth between the vision and its interpretation, but let's, let's listen to Daniel's interpretation. So anything after verse 19 is Daniel's interpretation. In 22, it says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. This is very kind and flattering language. Your greatness is strong, right? That was not said in the original vision, right? We have symbolism, symbolism that Daniel is interpreting, but Daniel is choosing his words very carefully and very wisely to say, you are great and strong. Look at the mightiness of your dominion. So he's showing a kindness because he knows he's already, he's dismayed at the beginning of the interpretation. He knows what this is about and he's fitting in what this is about. He's fitting in, you know, that kind of, uh, if you've ever heard of like a, um, if you, as a leader, if you've ever had to give bad feedback and you give that like compliment sandwich, hey, let me tell you something great about your performance. Let me real quick tell you how you need to improve and let's end back with some compliment at the end. We need this to end on good terms, but really the point of the, the Oreo here is the cream in the middle, right? There's a sense of that going on with Daniel. He knows what this is about, but is trying to be kind and merciful. And we see it further done if we look at the uh, dream itself in 4.14. So look at verse 14 of Daniel 4. He proclaimed aloud and said thus. So this is Nebuchadnezzar telling Daniel what he, what he dreamed or what his vision was. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Well, when we go to see the interpretation, Daniel says, oh, this great tree is you. And he just gives flowery language. But that's a problem because the tree was just told to be stripped of its branches, take its, uh, be chopped down, uh, have the leaves stripped off. This is like brutal. This is a brutal description. How does Daniel interpret it in verse 23 of Daniel 4? So again, back at this same portion, he's now giving his interpretation after having said, you are the tree and your magnificent branches have reached the end of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. All he says is chop down the tree and destroy it. Daniel is a slave. Daniel has been taken away from his home and is now sitting, having heard the, a, a vision, and he has been blessed by God with the interpretation to say, this guy's going to turn into a nut job. He's going to go eat grass like a beast. He will be brought low and you will get to destroy every aspect of this. Daniel knows what's here. And he's a slave. He's been seeing Nebuchadnezzar's oppression firsthand. Here's your chance to rub in the wound. 
given the most descriptive language possible of the pain of what God will do to Nebuchadnezzar. It's God doing it. It's not me. But I'm going to be descriptive and let him know how much he's going to be judged. And I, as Daniel, will be vindicated. No. He speaks kindly and gently. Gives a soft answer. He says, he says, the, angel, the watcher, the holy one, said to come, chop down the tree and destroy it. In simple language. And sums up what was more descriptive in the vision itself. And we see this, he does this one more time, where he really uh, alters or intentionally omits some details uh, in, the, in the vision uh, interpretation, not because they're not important, but out of kindness, because he is still conveying what God would have him convey. So look at Daniel 4.16 now, so jumping back to what Nebuchadnezzar says, and then let's listen to how Daniel interprets it in 4.25. So starting in 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. Then we jump over to 25 and hear how Daniel interprets this. Um, that shall be you, oh, uh, that, shall, uh, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The, the key piece there, he's not hiding away from, you're going to be doing some strange things. You're going to be driven out and eating grass. But perhaps he's, he's leaving it open to maybe you will be run out of your kingdom. Maybe you're, you're a gatherer. You're picking berries and herbs. Who knows? With a piece he omit, omits intentionally is your mind will be taken from you. Your mind will be made into a beast. He's easing up on the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar because God will give Nebuchadnezzar his humiliation. It is not for Daniel to rub in the humiliation. He is being kind and giving a gentle answer to an oppressor. And we see again at the end of verse 26 that I just read there, you'll see where it says, uh, and it shall be confirmed for you from the time that you, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse uh, 26, it says, uh, oh, there we go. Uh, it says in verse 26, and it, as it is commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time that you know that heaven rules. So we've seen he references, okay, you'll learn that the most high rules. And you're the stump, so not cut down to its roots entirely. The stump, it'll be confirmed for you. You'll get your kingdom back, but you need to learn that the most high rules. But in his vision, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, what he hears is verse 17. What he says is, you will, um, the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom? He will, and sets, it, sets over it the lowliest of men. He intentionally omits, Daniel is omitting in his retelling, the fact that, hey, you know how you've been set to rule? You're the lowliest of men. You're the one who it was given. Said, Daniel says, it'll be given back to you. So we have this merciful teaching to someone who would, from my earthly perspective, I would say deserves no mercy. He deserves no mercy. And yet, Daniel is merciful. But where do we see the peak level of Daniel's mercy? 
He's held back. He's been kind and gentle with his telling, as kind as he can be to tell someone, you're going to go be eating food like oxen. You're going to go be eating grass. You're going to be wacko. Your kingdom's going to be taken from you for seven periods of time. But where is his greatest mercy? It's not in just the, the calm language. It's in Daniel 4, 27. It's in what we have for us to learn. He didn't end at the interpretation. He gives him the teaching, and he gives him the gospel. He says, There, O four, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And without any pullback, no resistance, no calming of it, he says it clear, straight, and plainly to, to an oppressor who needs to hear it. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The greatest mercy Daniel can show this man is to tell him the truth of God and to break from his sin and instead to show mercy, to be righteous. This is the greatest mercy Daniel can offer Nebuchadnezzar, is to not leave him in the dark, but to instead point him that the Most High demands righteousness. And you are not righteous. Break off from your unrighteousness. This is the gospel, and Daniel is sharing it plainly. So we see the Daniel is modeling for us this mercy and this humility. But God is clearly, through this, going to bring low and break down Nebuchadnezzar. And I want us to see why. I want us to see the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. And I also want you to see the oppression of Nebuchadnezzar because they are both there. We know Daniel is blessed with wisdom and understanding. So the reasoning of his teaching of 20, verse 27, it could be that God just blessed him to know, I need to tell Nebuchadnezzar, break off pride. You need to be away from this prideful um, rebellion to God. Stop your, your oppression. Instead, be merciful to the oppressed. But I would say Daniel has the blessing and wisdom of God, but he also has firsthand experience. He has for several years been at the right hand of Nebuchadnezzar and witnessed what Nebuchadnezzar says, does, and how he behaves. Look at, look at Nebuchadnezzar's pride in um, the handling of Daniel 3 when we have the building of, the creating of this image. In Daniel 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar has, makes a god. So that's, I mean, to be a, call yourself a creator right? There is one creator, but to call yourself a creator of a God, of a heavenly being, of something to be worshiped, is the peak level of pride. And he does it, and he says, you will bow and worship it. And we saw repeatedly, I believe it was 14 or 15 times in Daniel 3, the recounting of the story says, bow down and worship this image, which he had made, highlighting over and over Nebuchadnezzar making it. That is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to do. He wanted them to worship something he made, because if you worship his handiwork, who are you worshiping actually? The creator, which in this case is Nebuchadnezzar. And we see even further, he calls God impotent and inept. If you look with me in Daniel 3 and look at verse 15, he's challenging Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and saying, you need to bow down and worship because I will destroy you and no one can stop me. Look at verse 15. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good, it is good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? 
okay? No God can deliver you out of my hands, right? He gets, he gets his answer in the fiery furnace. There is a God. There is one true God. And even Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right after this, give him a rebuke and say, we do not have to answer you because there is a God above you. But you can see the pride of Nebuchadnezzar is abundant. If you go back further in Daniel, we even see in Daniel chapter 1, in the first two verses, in Nebuchadnezzar's conquering of Judah, you hear what Nebuchadnezzar does with the vessels of God's holy temple. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed his vessel in the treasury of his God. He has taken the vessels of worship of God and brought them into his gods. It's mine. I now possess it. And this idea of geography of the things of a god is immense importance. We've talked about this before. We've seen it before, whether it's Laban trying to find his idols and his gods from uh, his daughter who's sitting on them and trying to get these items before Jacob leaves, or if it's um, times when um, Elisha calls out, or excuse me, Elijah calls out the um, priests, 500 priests of Baal. There's constantly this, this significance to the location of the God or the things of God. And the pagan belief is that if I take this, well, then I have your God under my control. I've got him in lock and key in jail, in, in my God jail, which means my God, he's more powerful than your God. Now we know in reality, it is the God, it is Yahweh who gives lands, regions, places. He is a place person, who, he is a being who is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And yet he did have a special place designed in Israel and it's now been taken. And we later find out in, we'll look at some passages here and see how these vessels will be the undoing of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. If we'll see in future sermons where Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, but Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's child, he is now judged. He gets the handwriting on the wall because he is drunkenly throwing a festival to his gods, drinking out of the vessels of Yahweh. So these vessels are of extreme significance, and the pride of, of Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is extreme. And we, we're, when talking about pride, I can't help but step aside for a moment and think about our own lives, our experiences with pride around us. Pride touches every sin, every single one. Because when we sin, we are saying, my law, what I want, my needs are above the rules of God. It's above what God deems as good. What I deem as good is above that. It's what Adam and Eve did. We want to know. We want to be like God. We want the ability to choose what is right and what is wrong and choose what we think is good. And so what we see is when we have pride and elevate ourselves, we demote God and his priority. And so these pr the pride is touching every sin. But especially when it comes to authorities and rulers, we see pride and oppression come together. That, that you can't, you don't get one without the other. We've experienced it in our own life. It doesn't even matter if it's a mother who's the head person in charge of a bake sale for a school. They will find a way to let their position of higher authority in that bake sale known and that you need to make what they make or whatever it might be. It might be someone in your work. They have the tiniest amount of authority given to them, maybe on a project, maybe an official promotion. We know the org chart. 
like way down here, but you're a smidge below. And they're gonna let you know, they're gonna treat it as if they're the CEO and you have that much of a gap. With, pride, with authority and pride, those two together, oppression will come and follow. We have experienced it, we have been it, right? I'm middle management, I'm the peak of oppression. I'm the person who takes credit for the great work and I give all the blame for the bad work, right? That, that is our experience or our feelings when it comes to middle management, right? Is this idea of oppressor, oppression and pride. They come together. And we see this with Nebuchadnezzar on full display. He has pride. He has power. And with it comes oppression. Let's look at, uh, excuse me, I'm going to read for you Jeremiah 28. And you're going to hear um, the description of God judging Egypt. So this is the Battle of Carchemish, which gives, um, by transfer of title, De uh, Babylon authority over over uh, Jerusalem, over Judah. They have authority over Judah because Egypt currently is ruling Judah after they have killed uh, Josiah. And, then, and so Judah's a vassal. And now Babylon comes in and conquers Egypt, so they will get rule over, um, over uh, Judah. But before Babylon comes to conquer Judah, they beat in the Battle of Carchemish in, I think, 506 BC, they conquer Egypt. And God uses Babylon to bring judgment on Egypt before he uses them to bring judgment on Israel. And we learn of the nature of Babylon and of Nebuchadnezzar in this account from Jeremiah 28 and his description of the conquering of Egypt. Hear what it has to say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke, or excuse me, um, thus, excuse me, I said Jeremiah 28. We'll come back to that, Ezekiel 30. Thus says Yahweh God, I will put an end to the wealth of Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations, shall be brought in to destroy the land, and they shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. They are a ruthless nation that he is bringing on Egypt. These are ruthless people. If you continue throughout Jeremiah and look at uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and you look at Daniel, you hear these descriptions, right? In particular, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah line out the way in which they take all the men who would do the work and they leave only the poor to try to scramble for themselves in the land. And they do this three times where they take men out of Judah. And so they are a ruthless people. They are a ruthless oppressor. Turn with me to Jeremiah 50. Jeremiah 50, and we're going to look at 29 through 34. And we're going to see how God, through Jeremiah, um, talks about Babylon being tied between pride and oppression. Je uh, Jeremiah 30, 29 through uh, 34. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow. So this is the judgment of Babylon. And camp around her, let no one escape. Re repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done, for she has proudly defied Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, her young men shall fall in her squares. All her soldiers shall be destroyed on that day, declares Yahweh. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares Yahweh of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. 
pride, 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 three times said. 33, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. We see this oppression follows from pride. This oppression follows from pride. And it takes verse 34, it takes a redeemer bringing them back from Babylon. The redeemer is strong. Yahweh of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give the rest to the earth, give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. So we see this judgment of Nebuchadnezzar is not only of Nebuchadnezzar, it is of Babylon. They are experiencing the blessing and wealth, the benefits of having a killer, a cutthroat leader as their king, Nebuchadnezzar. It has been a bounteous time for Babylon, and Babylon as a whole are proud, as said three times in this passage, and they are oppressors. And we see God breaks them for this pride in Jeremiah 28 and references the vessels again. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. We see these all, it's all tied together, this pride and oppression. So again, when we think about Daniel giving his, his teaching in verse 27, saying, break off from your sin, that sin we now know is pride and oppression, and instead show mercy to the oppressed. This is what he's talking about. Nebuchadnezzar is an oppressor. Babylon is an oppressor. They are proud oppressors. Great. It's great that we're not in Babylon anymore, right? It's not my problem. That got dealt with. Eventually they got released. No, we see we are dealing with a present-day Babylon. We are in a world in which we experience oppression. And Nebuchadnezzar is not the only oppressor addressed in this passage. There is another oppressor. There is the oppressor who is greater. Look with me. I want you to see how the Satan is riddled throughout this passage. He is being, his judgment in the judgment of Babylon is the judgment of the Satan. And it is pointing to the Christ in this judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. Turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel 28. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel's right before Daniel. In Ezekiel 28, this is, we have the blessing of Ezekiel being one of the prophets in the same time of Daniel, who is um, uh, experiencing the exile. We're going to look through uh, the first half of Ezekiel 28, and we're going to look at two different attacks by God on Tyre. And on the ruler of Tyre. Here first in Ezekiel 28, we're gonna, I'm going to read quickly the first 10 verses. But I want you to pick out in this reading who is, being, who is the person, the oppressor that God is talking to and calling out, okay? And what are they being called out for, right? So you're going to hear the oppression and pride and hear um, the status that they're making themselves. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, Say to the prince, the prince of Tyre, thus says Yahweh God, or the Lord God, <coughs> because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man, 
and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself. You have gathered gold and silver into your treasures. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God. Therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their sword against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am God, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So what we know in a quick study of this is to the prince of Tyre. What is the prince of Tyre? You are not a God, you are a man. So we have the prince of Tyre as a man. We know the prince of Tyre is a man. What is, other than he has wisdom beyond Daniel, it said, right? So wisdom, obviously not in the, the wisdom that is the fear of the Lord, but wisdom in the understanding of the earthly functions and the way in which wealth works, the ability to accumulate wealth. But this man, who is a prince of Tyre, is an oppressor, and for that he will be, receive the judgment of God. Well, let's look again, and let's continue down. Now let's look through verse 11, and I'm going to roll through from um, Ezekiel uh, 28, 11, all the way through uh, 19. And pay attention to the change that's going on here. And this is what will connect it to our passage. Look at, listen to the change. Who's the audience? Is it the prince of Tyre, a man anymore? Instead, listen. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, Raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherubim. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till the unrighteous was found in you. The unright. He just described, to me, I can't help but have a tone of pain. How beautiful I made you and I found unrighteousness in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to the ashes on the earth. In the sight of all who saw you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled by you. You have come to, come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. 
wait a minute, it seemed at first we're just in a quick reading, you're rolling through Ezekiel, you have two attacks on Tyre. Before this, earlier in Ezekiel, you have another attack on Tyre. This, these are two. No, we're talking about the prince, the man who thinks he's, he's the ruler. And he even says, I am a god. I mean, how, how, how foolish that man is, because we then have an address to the king, to the guy over the prince, which is this cherub that was made and placed made perfect, right? It is good. He was created, and it was said it was good of his creation, and he was placed in Eden, and instead he fell, and there was unrighteousness. And what were the two things referenced in this passage for his falling? In verse 16, in the abundance of trade, you were filled with violence, oppression. This fallen cherub, who was made perfect but fallen and used to be in Eden, but now is cast out, is a fallen chair, uh, is filled with violence, oppression. And then in verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. Oppression and pride, they go together. Like chocolate and peanut butter, it is the combo you cannot separate, right? They go together. And so when Babylon is called out in our passage for us today, and this breaking off that Nebuchadnezzar is to do, is he to break off just from his sin? No, he is to break off from his king, O prince of Babylon. Break off from the king of Babylon, whose workings is violence, oppression, and pride. Let's look at this even in further detail. If, you go, if you're thinking right now that I am perhaps taking too far a leap by saying this thing for Tyre... There's also something like that going on in Babylon. Let's hear it called out by Isaiah, who again, another prophet in this time. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 14. Hear this taunt of Babylon, okay? God is now taunting and attacking, right? In, in other language, we've heard polemics, this idea of using imagery and saying things to point out the error and the, the tininess of these proud nations to show that God is the one most high. So listen to this. In uh, verse 14, or excuse me, Isaiah 14, we get in verse 3, when Yahweh has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Take this taunt. How the oppressor has ceased and the insolent fury ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruined the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses, the trees rejoice at the cedars of Lebanon, saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. The trees are rejoicing at the destruction of Babylon. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who are leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who are kings of the nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp, that is your pride, is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. We know that the, even the trees are screaming out and rejoicing at the bringing low of Babylon. 
We know that the mountains and rocks and nature calls out for the return of Christ, right? The world is affected by the wickedness of the earth and the spiritual realm. And listen, this sounds like a judgment of Babylon, but we continue in Isaiah 14 and hear how it seems to suddenly have another person in mind in Babylon's judgment. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, who are laid who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That O'Day star, right? In in the original Latin version, they use the word um, Luciferos. So if you've ever heard the word Lucifer, it's not actually like in the, in the scriptures, the name Lucifer, it's, it comes from Latin. But this is referring, this day star, this Lucifer, Satan, this is who it's referring to. After taunting and having the earth rejoice at the destruction of Babylon. So when we come in our passage in Daniel 4 to the judgment, this proud Babylon, your dominion has filled the earth. You have a dominion over the earth. There is judgment for you. There is judgment coming for this proud nation, this proud leader, and the Satan, the adversary. Turn with me back to Daniel 4. We'll we'll, uh, work our way through Daniel 4 um, some more by looking through, actually, Daniel 7 and some of these um, other passages in Daniel. We now know, okay, I think we all can agree, God's eyes right now and his judgment is focused On Nebuchadnezzar, absolutely. We know that. Daniel has told us that in the interpretation. But it is clear through the other prophets. God's focus is also on the judgment of the adversary. But we were told in this, in this, um, in, in both the vision and the translation, we are told by Daniel that this wicked, evil oppressor and the adversary, the Satan, has dominion over earth, has dominion for a time. And now it's being taken for a while, and it will be given back. Well, I ask you to turn um, a couple pages over. I know I said Daniel 4, but let's let's look at Daniel 7, okay? Daniel 7, we're going to look at verse 25. Uh, In a moment, as we read this, we're entering mid-dialogue. We don't have time to go through all of it, but we're going through mid-dialogue where we have, in this vision, Daniel's receiving a little horn who's speaking great things. He is, this is the Satan. Um, It is the one saying he is greater than the Most High. Hear what it says in Daniel 7, 25. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This is our Babylon tree, right? There is a dominion given. You are strong and mighty, and you have dominion over the earth. He is given, the adversary has been given for a time, rule and run over this, over this nation, over the earth, and over our lives. He is a proud oppressor. That time is now. The adversary, his dominion of this earth is now, okay? We're going to look at this in detail. 
So when we think about this, and we think about how Daniel acts, and when we get back to the main point of this, Daniel 4, 27, when we see how Daniel acts in the midst of his oppression, we need to be realizing God is telling us in the midst of our oppression, not unlike Daniel, under the oppression of the adversary and his dominion of the earth for now, how are we to act? Look at verse 26 and 27. So let's get some hope after this time of dominion. We should be acting and behaving in a way that knows, starting in verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the most high, people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This time of persecution and oppression will end and we will We will not secure the victory and dominion ourselves. Our Redeemer will secure dominion, and he will give it to the people, the saints of the Most High. At his second coming, Christ will come to judge the oppressor. He will come to judge who continue to oppress and be proud. The last time Nebuchadnezzar had a vision in in, um, Daniel, if you remember in Daniel 2, his vision was of these four kingdoms, and the fourth being the mightiest of them. But what brought down the four kingdoms? A stone that was cut by no human hands, that breaks it down, and instead instills a kingdom, which is a mountain that will fill the earth and has no end. It has eternal dominion. So he instills a kingdom. Well, who is this stone not cut by hands? Hear the words of Hebrew Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, and here, here the, of the nature of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the one who is bringing an end of earthly dominions, okay, these earthly kingdoms, four kingdoms, okay? We have Babylon that starts off. Then we have a lesser kingdom, which is Greece. Then after Greece, we have uh, Media Persia. We have Persia. Then after Persia, we have Rome and the persecution of Christ. And after Rome, we have the stone coming in, right? So Rome persecutes. Jesus brings in his kingdom at his death and resurrection, right? His kingdom come. The time is at hand. Then after he has brought in his kingdom, there is a time of dominion for the adversary still. As we heard in verse 25, there is this time of dominion before the ultimate final judgment. And we're hearing in Hebrews 9 that Christ, the high priest, God can only exist in a place not made with human hands. The created things cannot contain the creator. He can only be in a place made not with human hands. So then if we're connecting these dots, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
there's dominions going on here. There's a fight for dominions. There is what seems to be the adversary's dominion of today. Christ, when he died and rose again and got to then approach the ancient of days, he resurrected, he got to come before the heavenly council and be praised and worshiped by the angels and the heavenly host. And he comes before God. God seats him at the right hand of the father. He seats him at his right hand. He is in glory. And what is happening at that time? It's not, hey, you're seated right next to me. In a little while, we're going to give you a kingdom that has no end. No, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has a, secured a kingdom with no end. Okay, so we know that if God, Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and he has a kingdom without end, and it's there, he has it, we need to confirm, wait a minute, is, is this timing really the death and resurrection, which would mean that Christ's kingdom and dominion is already now, not a later future in a time's past? Well, turn with me. This is the last time I'm going to have you flip with me. Flip with me over to Acts chapter 7. Let's listen to Stephen and Stephen's teaching. This is going to bring us full circle back. Have you no doubt this comes back to our passage in Daniel 4, and you're going to hear how it all comes back together. But here, Daniel 7, or excuse me, Acts 7, uh, we're going to go start in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witnesses in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and who asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High, the Most High who Nebuchadnezzar must recognize, does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God cannot dwell in the things made of hands. We need to keep that in mind. If we know logically God cannot dwell in things made in hands, made by hands, let's now hear in verse 51. We'll continue on. Stephen, after quoting the scripture, says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, right? The proud, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the fathers, so again, the pride to resist the Holy Spirit, the pride to resist God. Which of the prophets, what's the outcome of it? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The result of the pride is oppression, oppression of God's people. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, the oppression of the righteous one. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Okay, this is post-Christ. I'm arguing that post-Christ, post his death and resurrection, there is no post-Christ, but post-Christ's earthly ministry, there he is at the right hand of the Father, which means he, if he is, has dominion. So, in this passage, we know Christ has, has risen. And this teaching comes from Stephen, telling him, you proud, oppressive people. You, have, you were proud and you oppressed the Messiah. 
How do they respond to hearing the gospel? In 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How is he full of the Holy Spirit? The Holy, God, Holy Spirit is God and God cannot dwell in things made by hands. God is present in his dominion of the earth. And what does Stephen see in this moment in which these angry, oppressive, proud people, he sees, behold, Christ sitting at the right hand, which means he's at the right hand, which means he has dominion of earth, and he has instilled a kingdom in this earth. Not a kingdom to come future, but there is a kingdom begun on this earth. And then what, is he, what happens? How does Stephen behave? Right? So to the point of how we are to react to this passage, besides just knowing the truth of God, how do we react? What does Stephen do? So Stephen sees this, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the proud oppressors cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garment at the feet of a young man named Saul, who will later become Paul, who will be reformed into Paul. They're stoning him. They're stoning the one who brought them the truth and the gospel. They're proud oppressors. And falling to his knees, uh, excuse me, and when they were stoning Stephen, Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, vengeance will be mine. No. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He is literally having rocks thrown at him for telling the truth of the Messiah. He knows that the judgment will come for those who are proud oppressors. And yet here he is falling to his knees saying, Lord, do not hold this against them. He is praying to his God in his moment of death, in his last breath, being persecuted, that God would save the ones who are killing him for his love of the Messiah. In Daniel 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar being brought low because of his pride and oppression. And in the same way, it is us who need to be brought low. Our pride needs to stop. And for you who are not a believer, you are the oppressor. You are the stone caster. That's been all of us. That's been all of us at some point. But if you are still actively opposed to God, you're smarter. You know better. Science is better. You're a part of the majority. You are a proud oppressor. And there is judgment. There is bringing brought low. We've heard the wording of that. But for those of us who are believers, we need to also understand God has, ha has his dominion. Christ's dominion is on earth now. And we, if we are in the midst of his dominion, if we know his kingdom is here, but dominion, a temporary authority and ability to wear out the saints of the Most High, as it said in Daniel 7.25, has been given over to the adversary. In this time and place, temporarily, the adversary will wear us out. He will attempt to. 
but we will not be worn out. We are not allowed to be worn out. A worn out saint would say, vengeance will be mine. You are not worthy of hearing the gospel. I am better than you. I will not, I'm going to lord over you. I know God is going to judge you. No, we are to be Stephen and we are to be Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, my enslaver, the person who has been the persecution and torment of my family, my household, and me, please hear the gospel. Repent. Repent. Show mercy to the oppressed. Leave your sin. Act righteously. Stephen, when he is being stoned, falls to his knees. Lord, forgive them. Please forgive them. So for anyone hearing this, there is something in what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar when he says, flee your sin and unrighteousness and instead be righteous and be merciful to the oppressed. Who is more oppressed? Now oppressed by their decision, but who is more oppressed than those who have chosen the slavery of sin? How can we show mercy to those who are enslaved to sin? Tell them of the sweet slavery to Jesus. Tell them of the way of Christ. The greatest mercy you can show is to go give them the gospel because they need it as much as you needed the gospel to be told to you today and tomorrow, this evening, every given moment. They need it just as much. And they need it because they are being oppressed by their own actions. They are digging for themselves a grave. And if you love them and you have the love of Christ, you have a love that is like Stephen and like Daniel, You will not just sit here and go, I know I'm being oppressed. I'll survive this. No, you will shake off that and say, I will come and attack you with the mercy of God, which is the gospel. Oh, oppressor, hear the gospel. Hear the gospel. Oppress no more. Turn off your righteousness and be merciful. And in you being merciful to them, you are pleasing God your Father. And with every saint, with every oppressor who becomes a saint— This kingdom of Christ, which is a mountain, fills greater this earth. And his kingdom is growing and progressing. And you have done the work of God. Because you do not know if it is Saul listening to your sermon. That later Christ will do his work to turn that sermon into the preaching and blessing and the bringing on and expansion of his kingdom further. It is not in your understanding and control and timing and knowledge It is your job to be merciful to the oppressed, merciful to the oppressors, merciful to all, and that mercy is by sharing the gospel. Pray with me. God, you have shown us mercy in that while we were yet sinners, while we were casting every stone we could reach for at you, Christ died for us. Christ took on the judgment that we might instead see the light of your mercy that we don't even deserve to recognize. Lord, you have blessed us. It is the great commission. It is the job of this life. Our life is not to live it. Our life is to worship you and to spread the worship of you by bringing in more saints. Lord, you have commissioned us with this, Lord, and we are grateful for the work of Christ so that we might see our commission. Lord, please equip us, strengthen us, send us out mightily with confidence so that when we are in front of our enslavers and oppressors, just like Daniel, we can say, in light of these things, break off from your unrighteousness. Lord, help us to daily hear this gospel from Daniel, break off from our unrighteousness. When we act in the ways that was of our old oppressor of enslaver, let us remember 
our beautiful relationship with Christ and instead behave in the nature of the ones, the one in which we identify. Lord, may you be glorified by the work of this outpost in this kingdom as we spread your mountain further and further and as you make your mountain successful however you deem fit. In your son's name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.